Although Daniel wasn't a perfect man, he was a godly man who served God faithfully, despite the many twists and turns of his life. An example of his faithfulness is his prayer life. Daniel prayed faithfully three times a day, and it was his faithful prayer that landed him an overnight stay in the lion's den. By the way, just a brief note here on effective prayer. Effective prayer is costly. There's always a price to be paid in order to have an effective prayer life. For instance, it's always going to cost us time. Perhaps that's the biggest rub. The cost may be, as we see here in the life of Daniel, fasting. He may have to give up food. The cost may be, will be, the necessity of humbling ourselves before God Almighty. There is always a cost to the prayer that moves the mighty hand of God. And as with other areas of our lives, there's no gain, there's little success, there is slow progress apart from some pain. So the question you have to ask yourself is, are you willing to pay the price? You want to pray like Daniel? You want to see results like Daniel? And I trust that we all do. Are you willing to pay the price? Daniel said, uh, Paul said, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. A disciplined Christian is a growing Christian. Paul was disciplined. Daniel was disciplined. So as we come to Daniel chapter 9, it should come as no surprise to those of us who have been paying attention to the character of Daniel that we find Daniel praying. Now, admittedly, his prayer recorded here in chapter 9 is unique. It's unique in the sense that it was prayed at a specific time in response to a specific situation and arose from a specific promise found in God's Word. If you remember back to, uh, to last week's message, part of the focus was praying the promises of God. And why do we want to pray the promises of God? Because God always keeps his promises. You want to have an effective prayer life? Pray according to God's will. Okay. And as illustrated by the life of Daniel, our prayers can be instrumental in the fulfillment of God's promises. And if I would highly encourage you to go back and listen to last week's message and fix that truth in your heart. Now, there are at least two ways that we can pray the promises of God. The first and perhaps the most normal way for us to do this is whenever you encounter one of God's promises in your daily time of Bible reading or in your time of study, whenever you do that, by the way, first of all, the promises of God are great fodder for our meditation. We're never lacking in anything to meditate on. So as you read your Bible and you encounter one of God's promises, there's nothing wrong with stopping right then and there, and I would highly encourage it, stopping right then and there and praying through that promise. And perhaps before you even pray through the promise, you take some time and you meditate on that promise and see how it can be applied to your life. Second, you could do a study on all the promises of the Bible 
and make yourself a list that you keep in your Bible. And part of your prayer time each day is that you pull out one of those uh, promises and you uh, meditate on it. And after you meditate on it and apply it to your life, you see how you, uh, then you can pray through it. And again, we just did some messages on meditation if you need a refresher. But either way, I believe that either way will enhance your prayer life. And perhaps breathe new life into your prayer life. Because here's what happens with our prayer lives. We, we want to be faithful in it. We desire to be faithful in it. We desire to be effective in it. But if we're not careful, almost without us even noticing, our prayer lives can become kind of like we do the same thing over and over. It becomes an exercise and a rote repeating of certain Christian buzzwords or Christian phrases. And we're so used to saying them that we don't even recognize that there's no passion in them. There's, there's no heart in them. We're just saying the same thing over and over again. They're nothing more than mindless repetition. I don't think that's how you want your prayer life to be characterized. I don't want my life to be characterized by that. Well, this is one way that we can keep from that. Pray the Scriptures. Pray the promises of the Scriptures. All right, so here in Daniel chapter 9, we have an example of Daniel praying. And remember, we learned last week that it was his study of the Scripture that led him to this specific promise that addressed a specific situation, current situation, that he and his fellow countrymen found themselves in. Now let's think this through for just a moment. Wouldn't it have been rather foolish for Daniel to have read this promise, a promise that spoke directly to the current condition of the people of God, a promise when fulfilled would have changed their circumstances, would have changed uh, the fact that they are away from their homeland, wouldn't it have been foolish for Daniel to ignore that promise? Wouldn't it? Of course it would. But what about us? How many times do we encounter one of God's promises and instead of stopping and dwelling on that promise, a promise that places before us the possibility of change, the possibility of divine blessing, perhaps the answer to a problem that we're dealing with, and we rush by it because we're so fixated on we've got to read our X amount of chapters today. Or probably, this is more like the case, our minds are not significantly engaged enough on what we're reading to even pay attention to it. And so we just blow by it, see. See, there are times when we all, not, there, not times, all times, when we would benefit to simply slow down in our Bible reading and stop and smell the roses along the way, as it were. You're probably just like me. I want to get through the Bible and every year, and I know in order to do that, I've got to read X amount of chapters a day. And so that becomes the goal too many times. Not feeding ourselves, but just kind of patting ourselves on the back. Oh, yeah, I read the Bible today. What did you read? Well, I don't know. It was somewhere in there. 
See? Slow down. Look for God's promises. Pray God's promises. So we saw again last week that uh, Daniel's prayer was formed by Scripture. He learned from reading the book of Jeremiah that the exile would come to an end after 70 years. We see that in Jeremiah chapter 25, and I won't read that again today. But a little bit later in Jeremiah, in chapter 29, Daniel would have read this, For thus says the Lord, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. That's what motivated Daniel to pray. God promised his people that, that once the seven years were complete, he would bring them back to the promised land. And the fulfillment of that promise led Daniel to pray. And we learned last week that the sovereignty of God and human responsibility work hand in hand. They are not in contradiction to one another. Daniel understood that God was sovereign. God, Daniel understood that God had decreed the end from the beginning, yet at the same time, he understood that, understood that God uses the means or the vehicle of prayer to bring about his will and to fulfill his promises. And why were the people in exile? This is something that we've kind of hinted at, but I don't think we directly addressed. Well, they were in exile because they had violated the covenant that God had made with them. Now, I won't take the time to read to you the entire covenant, which is found in Leviticus 26, but I would encourage you as a little bit of homework to go home and read Leviticus chapter 26. And when you read the covenant, you will find that God clearly spelled out the terms of the covenant. And we can summarize the covenant really with two statements. The first one is, if you obey my covenant, I will bless you. Second one is, if you disobey my covenant, you will suffer the consequences. You will be punished. Now, there is a specific part of the covenant that God made with Israel that directly addresses why they were in exile. God was very explicit in letting the people know that if they chose to violate the terms of the covenant, if they chose the path of disobedience over the path of obedience, then part of their punishment would be that they would be scattered among the nations. In other words, they would be sent into exile. Leviticus 26, 33, and I, and I, that's God speaking, and I, God, will scatter you among the nations, and I will unsheath the sword after you, and your land shall be a desolation, and your cities shall be a waste. So what happened? God's people disobeyed, and God was faithful to his word. Know this, God will always be faithful to himself, which means he will always be faithful to his word. You can't separate God from his word. You are not going to be the exception, right? And how many times do we fool ourselves in thinking, well, I'll be the exception. Maybe I'll be the, the one that God grades, uh, grades on the curb. No, no. God was faithful to his word. He did indeed scatter the people among the nations. And that's why Daniel and the people of Judah were exiles in Babylon. And let me remind you again. Daniel prayed because he believed that God was faithful. Daniel prayed because he believed that God was faithful. You may be wondering to yourself, well, how can we be so sure that Daniel believed that God was faithful? Or what was it? What, was there something that happened in Daniel's life that led him to believe and come to understand that God was indeed faithful? Well, certainly there is. Daniel was 
experiencing the faithfulness of God, albeit in a negative way. Say, what do you mean? God had promised in the covenant that he made, if the people were obedient, they would experience blessing. If they were disobedient, they would experience the consequences of it. And what was part of the consequences? They would go into exile. Where's Daniel? He's in exile. See, God's faithfulness doesn't always mean blessing. Sometimes God's faithfulness means judgment. Okay. And again, you're not going to be the exception. Would you like to put yourself up against Daniel? No, if Daniel could go into exile, you're not going to escape God's judgment. You and I are not going to escape God's judgment. All right, so let's get to his prayer. What can we learn from Daniel's prayer? Let me issue this disclaimer. We're not going to learn everything about prayer from Daniel's prayer, but we will learn some things about prayer from Daniel's prayer. All right? So don't come up to me afterwards and say, hey, you forgot this, this, and this. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Let me give you three things. First of all, we learn the necessity of preparation for prayer. So if you just want to say his preparation, that would be acceptable. Before Daniel prayed, there was a time of preparation. In verse 3, Daniel described how he prepared himself to pray. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. So what does Daniel do first? He turned his face to the Lord God. He sought God. He recognized who God was. And he recognized who he was in relation to God. He took the time to cultivate the proper attitude before he approached God. He did not rush into God's presence. He didn't presume anything. He wasn't overly familiar with God. But sadly... In our contemporary church culture, the reverence and respect for God has been lost. We treat him lightly as demonstrated by many of the quote-unquote worship songs that are sung by so many on Sunday mornings. And when you examine the lyrics, what are they? They're shallow. And many times they simply lead people to mindless repetition of the same mindless phrase over and over and over again. The beat of the song is more important than the message of the song. Songs that only appeal to the emotions and completely bypass the brains. Songs that are more sentimental than they are theologically sound. You don't believe me? Listen to Caleb. No, don't listen to Caleb. And much of what you're going to hear on quote-unquote Christian radio is what is being sung in many churches. They're being fed this steady diet of what I would call theological drivel. Much could be said of, much the same could be said of contemporary preaching. Shallow preaching that lacks any depth or substance, which means it lacks the ability to glorify God and to be used by the Holy Spirit to change lives in any way that is meaningful. Okay? Our great God, now think this through with me. Our great God is worthy of songs and sermons that are rich in truth and communicates the weightiness God deserves. 
He deserves to be thought about deeply. He deserves to be praised for the depth of not just his love, but for the depth of his character and all that he is, his wisdom, his holiness, his mercy. You know, what we're trying here to implement a time of heart preparation before the service. And I hope that you've noticed that. You say, why are you doing that? Well, our desire is to utilize those last four or five minutes before the service to prepare our hearts for worship. That means that we're going to do the best, uh, our best to clear our minds, to still and quiet our hearts the best that we can. Why? Do you understand that what is about to happen in a worship service is unlike anything else you will do throughout your week? There is nothing else like this that you are going to participate in. You have been granted an audience with the king. Would you rush into that unprepared? I hope not. Say, are you against us fellowshipping? Not at all. But I want you to be prepared to fellowship with God first. And then your brothers and sisters in Christ after that. Listen, until you are properly fellowshipping with God, you're not prepared to properly fellowship with one another. Amen. Again, we're entering the presence of God Almighty. We're entering the presence of the maker of heaven and earth. We are entering the presence of the ancient of days, a sovereign ruler of all creation. And so should we do that without any thought of who he is? Should we do that with an easy, breezy attitude? Honestly, can you go to Scripture and find the attitude displayed by so many professing Christians today? Can you find that attitude in Scripture? All you have to do is go read Isaiah 6. In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And what did Isaiah say? Hey, God, good to see you. I went to a church one time to a seminar, which... When my pastor sent me, he said, don't tell anybody where you're from, and now I understand why. But uh, they said, hey, this, this isn't, uh, this isn't uh, we just want you to consider uh, the, 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 the auditorium. It's, just, your, it's just, just a living room. Hey, if you want to kick off your shoes, put your feet up, go right ahead. No! Would you walk into God's presence and say, hey, wait a minute. I don't think so. He said, and I said, Isaiah, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have what? Seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So what's the proper attitude of prayer? It is respect, it is reverence, it is a recognition of who God is and who you are in relation to him. And you may be thinking, well, if I approach God with that kind of an attitude, that kind of seriousness, won't that kind of destroy the intimacy that I thought that I could have with God? Well, let me ask you this. Husband, do you respect your wife? Well, I hope you do. Does it destroy the intimacy you have with her? I hope it doesn't. As Alistair Begg says, majesty is not a barrier to intimacy. You can go home and think that through. 
So we have his preparation. Then secondly, we have his confession. Now, the bulk of his prayer is the confession of sin. The disobedience, the violating of the covenant that God had made with them, which resulted in their exile. And we see this in verse 4. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. So then in verse 5, what does he do? He confesses that they've sinned, they've done wrong, they've acted wickedly, they've rebelled, they've turned aside from God's commandments and rules. Verse 6, he confesses that they have not listened to him. Verse 7, he acknowledges that they are getting what they deserved. He doesn't try and rationalize or make any kind of excuse. He tells God, to us belongs open shame. So why did they deserve open shame? Well, he says at the end of verse 7, because of the treachery they committed against God. Oh, God, we're rebels. Oh, God, we're traitors. We deserve the shame that you brought upon us. And, you know, uh, today, if you'd have that kind of frank, open and honest confession, you'd be looked down on. There'd be many who say, hey, 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 that's not healthy behavior. You're going to destroy your self-esteem. You're going to destroy your positive attitude. Uh, Don't don't be doing things like that. Daniel, 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 we've got to get you in to see a counselor. Daniel, quit being so hard on yourself. And perhaps you're sitting there thinking, yeah, geez, Daniel is a little harsh. Well, if we are tempted to think this way, the Bible offers you a rather forceful correction. The Bible would say, no, here's the problem. The problem's with your thinking. The problem's with your misunderstanding of the greatness, the weightiness, the glory of God. The problem is you don't understand the holiness of God. See? That's why you think that Daniel is being too harsh. That's why you think, oh, confession, who needs to do that? Well, you don't understand who God is. You don't understand the weightiness of God. You don't understand the holiness of God, see? So he goes on, verse 8, we've sinned against you. Verse 9, we've rebelled against you. Verse 10, we have not obeyed your voice. Verse 11, we transgressed your law. We have refused to hear your voice. I think you get the picture. Now, if we pay close attention to Daniel's prayer of confession, we learn what biblical confession sounds like. 1 John 1, 9, if we do what? Confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But have you ever thought about, well, what does biblical confession look like? Let me give you three things I see here from Daniel. Number one, it acknowledges who God is. It acknowledges who God is. Verse 4, Daniel begins confession by recognizing who God is. He says, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. See, until you have a proper understanding of who God is, you will never have a proper understanding of your own sinfulness. Okay? Until you understand who God is, you will never have a right view of your own sinfulness. Second, biblical confession accepts personal responsibility for sin. Biblical confession accepts personal responsibility for sin. So after acknowledging who God is in verse 4, Daniel immediately accepts responsibility in verse 5. We've sinned. We've done wrong. We've acted wickedly. We've rebelled. We turned away from your commandments and your rules. You know, personal responsibility, taking personal responsibility is as hard today to find as an Ohio State Buckeye loss or a Cincinnati Bengals playoff win. (laughs) I mean, after all, nobody likes to admit that they're wrong. It's much easier to shift the blame, to point the finger like Adam did in the Garden of Eden. I've always wondered what supper was like that night. (laughs) God, 
It's much easier to deny that you've done anything wrong. Or if you've done something wrong, it wasn't really your fault. The actions of someone else, that's really the problem. But deep down inside, because God has given us all a conscience, we know that we are the ones responsible for our actions. We know that we are the problem. Third, biblical confession requires you to be specific. As Daniel confessed his sin, he didn't generalize. He didn't lump them all together. He didn't classify them as, ah, I just made a mistake. Or, this is my favorite, it's just an error in judgment. No, measuring a board too short and cutting it the wrong length is an error in judgment. Taking God's name in vain, violating God's law, your lust, your adultery, whatever it is, that's sin. Daniel didn't try and minimize or rename the sin to make them sound less offensive. He methodically confesses all the sinful attitudes and all the sinful actions that led them to this place. Now, what happens when you and I confess? Listen, this is not pleasant. I'm not saying this is pleasant. Nobody likes to hear what a rat they are. Right? But what happens when you begin to confess your sin specifically? Well, what, for instance, what happens when the Holy Spirit shows you that speaking your mind, you know, I love this. Well, that's, I just tell it like it is. That's just the way that I am. Now, if you're a Christian, you better think about what you're saying. Because you know what that reveals? That reveals a lack of self-control, which means that you're not filled with the Holy Spirit, which is a command for every Christian to be filled with the Spirit. So go ahead, speak your mind, live in sin. I don't like that. I didn't write it. What happens when the Holy Spirit convicts you of gossip? Oh, wait a minute. I'm just sharing a prayer request. Oh, really? Uh, what happens when the Holy Spirit convicts you that your constant worry and being anxious all the time reveals a lack of trust in God? Well, the first thing that begins to happen is you begin to see just how sinful as Christians we can still be. We begin to understand that apart from Christ, we are still what? Helpless. But as we recognize our daily struggles with sin, the more we begin to appreciate grace. And the more we appreciate grace, the more God is glorified in us. So yes, there's a pain to be experienced, the fact that we have to list the litany of our sins. But in that, God is glorified. What did Joshua say to Achan when Achan stole the hunk of gold? He said, confess and what? Give glory to God. See? Thirdly, his petition. We've seen his preparation. We hear his confession which leads us to his petition. Verse 16, O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O oh Lord, hear. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Now, some of you 
who paid attention to the sermon last week may recall that I said that we're going to look at four truths that Sinclair Ferguson uh, gave to us, and we got through one, and you're probably sitting there thinking, is he, is he, is he had a senior moment and just forgotten the other three? No, here we go. Second thing that Ferguson teaches us is from Scripture, true prayer always seeks the glory of God, and that's exactly what Daniel does here. True prayer always seeks the glory of God. As you read these verses, on what basis does Daniel make his petition to God? Well, notice Daniel asked God to make his face shine upon, now notice this, your sanctuary. Not the people's sanctuary, your sanctuary. Then he says, open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. Then in verse 18, Daniel asked God to hear because, as he says, your great mercy. And then he reaches the climax in verse 19. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. In essence, he's saying, God, your reputation is at stake. You promised in your word that the exile would end after 70 years. And if you don't get us out of the exile, guess what? Your reputation is going to suffer. So he appeals to the glory of God. Daniel doesn't say, bring us home because we deserve it. Daniel doesn't try and bargain and barter with God. He didn't say, hey, bring us home and we promise we'll, we'll try really, really hard to do better. No. Uh, he didn't try and cut a deal with God. He wasn't seeking a plea bargain from God. He petitions God to hear them, to forgive them, to act not because of who they were, but because of who he is. And there's a world of difference between the two. True prayer always seeks the glory of God. And could it be that our prayer lives are so ineffective for the simple reason that it's not, our, that it's not God's glory that we are most concerned about, but it's our glory, it's our reputation, our welfare, our well-being. Next, Ferguson says, true pr prayer appeals to the mercy of God. Verse 18 and then, fourthly, true prayer always expresses the needs of the people of God. Now, notice in Daniel's prayer, he doesn't try and minimize their sin, nor does he try and bypass the consequences of their sin. In the case of Daniel and the rest of the exiles, the consequences were their suffering, their shame, and their humiliation. But Daniel understood that God, now listen to this, God is not indifferent to the needs of his people, even though they brought it on themselves. Isn't that a great picture of God? If you are in Christ, if you have experienced salvation, this is for you. You didn't deserve anything from God. You deserved damnation. You deserved judgment. You deserved punishment. But what have you been given? Grace. God is not indifferent to the needs of his people. And that's what Daniel prays. Again, Ferguson says he is a true father. And just as God heard Daniel, we too can be assured that our father will hear us when we pray the promises of God, when we pray for the glory of God, as we appeal to the mercies of God and express the needs of the people of God. We can be assured that God will hear our prayers. 
that God will respond to our prayers, that God will hear those pleas. Old Testament scholar and pastor Ian Dugid provides what I think is a fitting conclusion to our lesson on prayer. He writes, We too should begin by reminding ourselves of God's greatness and His grace, shown in His faithfulness to His covenant promises. If we forget God's greatness, then our prayers will be too small. Indeed, I find that my own prayers are almost always too small. I don't find myself praying for a great and mighty work of God's Spirit in our community and in our day. I don't very often pray for remarkable demonstrations of God's power in our church. I forget God's greatness, that He is the one who created all things out of nothing, the one who hung the stars in the heavens and assigned the seas their boundaries. I have forgotten that He is the one who raises up kings and world leaders and brings them down again. If I remembered God's greatness, my prayer life would be radically transformed. He goes on to say, yet my prayers are also too small because I forget God's grace. I'm often tempted to think that I am beyond fixing and that so too are those around me. The more I see of my own heart, the more I know that I am a rebel and a sinner. I have not listened to God's laws and made them my delight, nor have I taken to heart the admonitions of God's prophets. How great a condemnation that is for someone like me whose whole life is spent in studying God's word. In view of the privileges and opportunities I have been given, what an unprofitable servant I am. Seeing myself as I really am in this way could easily lead to despair and to failing to pray. Because I start to think, God couldn't possibly use someone like me. What is more, seeing the depth of the sins of others around us can have the same result. As we live and work with people, sooner or later the mass slips and we see their sin too. And this is true not just of non-Christian friends and workmates, but of Christians as well. People in the church regularly disappoint us and let us down, and we are tempted to believe that God cannot use them either. Why pray at all for ourselves or for others if we are such chipped pots and damaged vessels? Well, he concludes, the answer is that we should pray because of God's grace. The solution to our sin is not to brush it under the carpet and pretend that it doesn't exist. There are plenty of people who want to do that in our contemporary context, people who don't even want to mention the word sin. That was not Daniel's way. The answer to our sin is to remember God's grace and to confess it before him, throwing ourselves on his sovereign mercy. I am indeed a filthy sinner, quite unfit for God's use, and so are you. Yet this same holy God has nonetheless set his name upon us, calling us Christian and choosing us to be incorporated into his flock. He has attached his honor to us in this world so that, in large measure, what people think about him is shaped by what they see in us.